said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. There was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important. And to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, profane faithers, podcast listeners, how y'all doing? How y'all doing? It's your boy, Dan White Hodge, coming at you another week, another great episode. Hope you're feeling good this week. Um, Man, here we are in uh, February of 2019. If you're listening to this in real time, um, that's what's uh, that's what's going on. This week was a particularly rough week for me. Um, I had to put down uh, a cat and uh, Greta. She is she was our first pet um, as a married couple that we got. And we she was a rescue cat and. Um, just, man, I love that cat. It was, it was really hard. This is the first time that I've actually had to put down a pet. Um, growing up, I mean, I've had pets. They would, you know, die naturally. Um, you know, especially in Texas, I was, you know, I had a dog and he, yeah, he just, he just died. I mean, he just went to sleep, just never woke up. And, uh, I had two other cats that just got old and they died. Um, but this was the first time I actually had to physically like, just like, Man, that's a long drive. <laughs> that's a long drive, y'all. Um, and, you know, I know for some of you, you'd be like, oh, it's a cat. Come on. But for those of you who are pet owners, you know, they are they are members of the family. They are they are folks who are with you. In fact, as I'm recording here, I have my 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 little pooch next to me, uh, Scooter. He's asleep in his in his little bed. So it's um it's a trip. It's a trip is, is all I got to say, because. It's it's sad. It's really sad. I mean, she was suffering, you know, and I, I and I and I knew that we probably spent and probably a ridiculous amount of money, um, you know, probably well over thirteen hundred dollars just to try to figure out what was going on. She got sick last summer uh, in July and just never really recovered. She had a, a a streak of like two months of where she was like back to her normal self and everything, but near the end she could barely move she's had labor breathing uh and really what the clincher was the labor breathing the gurgling noises and she had vomited and just couldn't even move out of her vomit and it was like it's time it's time it's it's cruel to 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 have this you know and pets as they say you know animals they don't have the same kind of time structure as we do as humans right as humans we think oh well let's you know, let, let's try to work it out or we'll miss it. And the pets just know, man, I'm in the immediate, I'm in pain, and this is miserable. Um, so, yeah, it was a rough week, you know what I'm saying? I think the big thing for me is, and one of the takeaways for this is particularly allowing that sadness, allowing that grieving to happen rather than fighting it, right? And that's part of what I've learned in my own therapeutic process Um that I didn't get growing up in, in, you know, faith-based settings, you know, people were like, Oh, pray for it. Or do this and this and that. And at some point you just got to get over it. Right. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's crap. That's crap. That's part of that 
BS theology that I talk about all the time. And um, you got to feel it. You got to allow yourself to feel it and allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to go through that process. These, these this is, this was, like I said, this is like a member of the family dying. And it was like, she said, like I said, she was our first pet. She was our first pet, our first cat that we had. Um, and she was a lover too. She loved to snuggle and play and, you know, this last bout and she had been through it. I mean, I remember one time we had x-rays on her. They said, you know, she had broken bones and, but she survived that. Uh, she got run over. She survived that. She was chasing a squirrel right into the street and his car just right ran over. She survived that. Um, I mean, one of her eyes was out. I mean, so she was, and she was a rescue cat and, you know, it's part of what, you know, uh, my wife and I have committed ourselves to just, you know, there's a lot of animals out there. If we were, we're going to get another animal. Let's, let's do a rescue pet. Um, as much as purebreds are attractive, um, and they, uh, yeah, I guess there, there are some good pets out there that need homes. And so we feel good that we gave her a home for about six years. Uh, the doc thought she was actually older than what we thought she was, uh, probably closer to 20 years old. Um, so that's kind of right on the outer limit, um, of, you know, of, of, of the, of the life of a, of a pet, particularly a cat, uh, and one that's been outside, um, my indoor cats, you know, they, they're going to last a lot longer, but allowing yourself to grieve, allowing yourself to feel the pain, allowing yourself to have those feelings be manifested within you. I think that's an important part of life. Um, too often here in the West, we don't allow time for lament. We don't allow time for grief. It's, you know, feel it for a second and then move on or fix it. You know, you gotta, you know, stuff it, you know, and all those things, as I'm finding those things affect how you operate, how you think your stress levels, your sleep levels, all of those things. And so I don't know, y'all. I'm just I am trying to decolonize my mind of the theology that I was raised up with. A lot of it evangelical theology um, that just didn't, you know, didn't didn't doesn't connect. Once we start getting into true spiritualities, true, true connections with the mystics and the elders and the ancestors, evangelical theology just doesn't just doesn't hold up. Um, and so for me, it's been about seeking another path. And that connects uh, with our guest today, which I'll introduce here in a minute. Um, but yeah, it, it just, um, I because I know I, for a long time, I didn't. I didn't allow myself to grieve. I didn't allow myself to feel. And it's so easy um, to be overcome and overrun uh, by different things. And then those things manifest themselves physically as well, right? You get sick, you get uh, colds. I remember my first mentor, he was sick all the time, all the time all the time um and then would be out for like two weeks and just growing up how i was shown like you're not shown how to rest there's a great series on netflix right now uh, killer mike he puts it out there some of you probably have already seen it uh and if you haven't if you have netflix you have the subscription there i highly recommend going to see it it's called killer mike trigger warning and um, I'm hoping they can put more episodes up there because, man, he 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 is an interesting brother. I, I really do like Killer Mike. You know, if anybody got connected to him, I'd love to get him on the show and just talk because he's he he's got some he's got some amazing stuff out there, man. And so he was uh, one of the shows was talking about religion and particularly about white Jesus and how white Jesus has become you know, problematic. Like you gotta, we, we gotta definitely take out and kill white Jesus, which I'm with metaphorically speaking. I don't think we gotta go kill white people. Don't, don't take it that way. But I do think metaphorically speaking, 
we got to get rid of the images of white Jesus. I think it has become a burden. Um, and so he's trying to start this new religion. And, you know, one of the things that comes out of it is sleep. And he says, you know, particularly for people of color, black folk, the image of sleep or the concept of sleep comes with so many negative attributions to it you mean you know think about it think about it you know how we were looked at uh during the enslavement period right we were looked at like if you sleep if you're you know if you're just taking it easy you're just right the white man working you know and you've got cartoons of this i talk about this in in um homeland insecurity right i get this old cartoon of the black man napping while the white man's working hard you know and then we got sayings like stay woke you know, don't get caught sleeping. Don't get caught slipping, you know. And, and and again, I mean, yes, to that to that sense of, you know, being conscious, being awake. But oftentimes we are shown it's it's shown to us that sleep is a weakness. And we're behind on sleep. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I love sleeping in. I love my sleep. <laughs> right. I'm not a morning person. I hate mornings. Uh, it usually takes me a couple of hours to get going in the morning. I cannot stand it. My time is night. My time is in the night. That's when I'm the most creative. That's when I'm the most um, alive, you know, unless it's been a long day and then I got to get some sleep. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm really trying to reclaim the spirit, the spirit of sleepness. And I'm really trying to reclaim, uh, you know, the the negativity and to, well, to, dis to, to dislocate the negativity and reclaim the positivity around sleeping. Because I do believe we as black folks, we don't we, we don't we don't know enough about sleeping. <laughs> Because again, it's been seen as a negative thing. It's been seen as a weakness. It's been seen as something that uh, holds, us, holds us back. If you sleep too long, you go miss the work, you go miss this. And then come to add on, you know, over policing, over taxation, uh, um, you know, all the issues that we particularly of black folk need to deal with, we miss out on sleep. And so that was kind of the, the, the crux of Killer Mike's church was the sleep. <laughs> fascinating concept right um you got to go see that episode if you haven't seen it you got to see it um it's 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 fascinating and it connects with and i wanted to really this whole episode i really wanted to bring back to the theme that i've been trying to cultivate this season here in season three and that is about connecting with mental health physical health uh rest um therapeutic processes and what those look like and so my guess this week uh the great jill riley is i have her on and she's going to be uh talking a little bit about her life and what she has experienced uh, in that realm and so i've known jill now oh my gosh for for a while now we met when i was still directing the center for youth ministry studies at my current employer and um we just we've just connected she's a great mind and she had sent me a proposal for a book which by the way any publishers are listening y'all need to go and check this woman's stuff out she's got some amazing stuff and yes i know that christina not christina cleveland um who i need to get on the show you know christina tell her tell, tell brother said hey hey come on on the show come on profane faith shoot come on now <laughs> um uh, 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 bipolar faith. Uh, y'all know who I'm talking about. Uh, that book. We have what have a strong book um, by Monica Coleman. Um, that's a great book. Jill adds to that lexicon. Jill adds to that arrangement of knowledge around mental health. Um, and so I wanted to bring her on because it connects again with the theme. Uh, she talks about her life. She talks about these theological connections to it um, as a pastor, as a former pastor, as a mom, as a Korean woman, uh, somebody who was abandoned as a kid. Woo! 
all kind of stuff going on in her life. Um, and, you know, it's 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 important, again, to allow ourselves to process things. Part of the Western culture is just to keep move things moving. And I'm I am just so not about that. I think we got to break some of those things down um, and begin to reclaim rest and reclaim our own spiritual therapeutic processes. Um, so Jill Riley, uh, an adopted Korean American, she was raised in North Idaho during the height of the white supremacy movement of the 1980s. She met her husband, a Montana native, while in college in Seattle, Washington. After completing her education, she and her husband moved to Billings, Montana to raise their family. That's where she's at now. Her love of telling stories blended with humor and passion for people allow us unique insight into the life of a survivor of abuse, serial abandonment, like serial abandonment, y'all, and neglect. Jill's faith has overcome an authoritative, over-religious home to become strong and resilient and more grace-filled than she ever could have imagined. Jill's work has been included in more, uh, or Jill has included more than 20 years as, uh, or at, as she was 20 years as a minister. She was you know, part of a church, um, and she's going to talk about that and, um, and, and get into that and what, that, what those elements look like. She was serving as both pastor and consultant in many different denominations. Uh, her entrepreneurial spirit and pastor's heart had led her to start three churches in Washington and Montana. She's an excellent communicator, both in person and in print, a popular speaker teacher. She shares stories that speak with honesty and raw vulnerability. She's about to get into this right now, y'all, uh, on topics of faith, mental illness, parenting, and life as a broken woman in need of grace. Man, I had a, such a great time talking with Jill, and I hope y'all are as blessed as I was um, to just hear her and hear her story and where she's been uh, and where she's going. So without any further ado, y'all, here's Jill and I talking about faith, mental illness, and moving forward. Well, you ready? Let's do this. Ready. ready. So, Jill, thank you so much for uh, taking the time for, you know, coming out and here in Profane Faith. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Welcome from frigid Montana. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's, uh, I guess it's frigid here. I mean, it's, I don't know, I've kind of gotten used to 20 degrees. What, what y'all got out there? Well, right now it's about it's about twenty, but it's been sub zero for a couple of weeks. So uh -huh. we're we're little popsicles out here. I but heard we're that. used to that. We are used to that. We don't even put on a we don't even put on a full jacket till it's zero degrees. There so. you go. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, man, Chicago hardens you up, man. It's like, shoot, it warmed up to twenty eight and I was like, Man, I'd take my parka and beanie off. I was like, Man, I'm I'm hot. Did it freeze <laughs> the Californian out of you? It, I think so. I think so. I mean, we had the, you know, that little polar vortex stuff, but uh, that was cold. You know, negative 26, 28 with a windshield of negative 50. That was no joke. But then, like I said, you know, like right now, it's I think it's 22. This morning it was 17. And I don't know. I went outside with a sweatshirt on. And I was like, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Here's the difference. Y'all hit a full polar vortex and you stay home from work. We hit a polar vortex and we put a hat on. <laughs> that's funny yeah no they they shut a lot of stuff down it was uh yeah we uh we had a few of those too back in our bad winter um back in 2013 i think or something like that where it dropped down a negative 15 or negative 10 or whatever but yeah it's it's yeah it's, oh i always tell folks and then i know people i have students that are in northern minnesota they were like man this is nothing this is like every day so yeah 
Yeah. Well, someday I will podcast you from someplace warm with the palm trees blowing and there we go. An umbrella drink in my hand and the- send you a picture. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, well, for the listeners, Jill, tell us a little bit about who you are, what's happened from birth until now. I imagine there's been a few events. From birth until now, that's like that's like forty six years of stuff. I don't think you've got <laughs> enough time. <laughs> I I am a Korean American, and I was born in uh, Seoul. Presumably, I was in an orphanage there, abandoned. Hmm. Um, I was adopted when I was young. Nobody actually really knows the date, but uh, you know, before the age of two, I was adopted to a family in Detroit. Um, from what I know, I had nine brothers. Um, I, um, I, I guess, I don't know if this is appropriate to say, but I always assumed I was adopted by a black family in Detroit. Cause I always, always feel like I fit in with black families better than Korean families. So mm. that, that's kind of my own storyline, <laughs> but, uh, that family decided that they didn't want, um, didn't want me and they abandoned me also. So I was readopted Whoa. again, um, to a family in, uh, Nevada, in Reno, Nevada, and had an adopted older brother and older sister and a mother and a father. Um, I don't know how these people ever got approved to uh, adopt adopt children. Uh, They were of the worst kind of crazy and sickness that uh, that kind of evil has to offer. Uh, My father... Yeah, my father was a pornographic photographer and um, also the head of the church board, incidentally. My mother was the church secretary, so we were kind of, I always call them kind of the Ken and Barbie of the church world because they were picture perfect on the outside, and so were we. We were supposed to be perfect all the time, but um, my father molested me um, as, oh. a very, as a very, very young child, and my mother was um, was chronically physically abusive and mentally abusive. Um in just really horrific ways. Uh, they divorced sometime before I was the age of four or five, I think. So a a lot happened, um, to me before then. Um, but then, um, but then we moved up to North Idaho, which was kind of interesting because I was raised in North Idaho in the 80s when all the white supremacists were there. So um, there was all these all these white kids. I mean, it was completely white everywhere except for, uh, you know, these three little Asian kids. It was kind of a um, scary environment where they were burning crosses on lawns and and uh, and bombing buildings. And it was, it was pretty scary. Yeah, pretty scary time in the in the Northwest. Um but my mother was um, my mother was cruel. She was mean. I you know the the memories that I that I have of um, you know just checking my clothes, making sure that there was no blood seeping through my clothes, so anybody would know that she had beaten me. Um, she was uh, she, you know eventually she kind of completely lost her cool, threatened to kill me, um, and it wasn't until. Um, it wasn't, you know, as a high schooler, I remember going to school and telling one of my teachers because she had been particularly violent, um, had said, you know, if you don't, if I don't come back to school on Monday, you should probably come look for me because I was convinced she was going to kill me. Um, so that, Dang. that, yeah, that's the crazy environment that I was raised in. So, um, 
halfway through my senior year of high school, the state finally took custody of me. Um, but then, um, uh, I have no love lost between, you know, department of family services, um, and myself, but they just said, you know, listen, we're picking up kids off the street. You're a straight A student. You're fine. Um, so they returned custody to my mother and then she abandoned me before the end of my, um, my high school, my high school career. So I, uh, it's been, 30 plus years since she's spoken to me and, um, my father died some years back. So, um, so now is a time when, you know, I feel like I can kind of tell, um, part of this story of my family and some of the subsequent mental health struggles that I've gone through because of it alongside of the family history. I also, um, have had this deep, passion for God and this, this love of the church and, uh, my mm. faith has been my mainstay. And at the age of 14, um, I felt a very strong call to vocational ministry, um, helped plant my first church at 19 years old, um, and just, uh, has, has spent a life of ministry and, uh, serving people in, as a consultant, as a business consultant, as a church consultant, as a minister, helped start uh, two more churches. Uh, But about four years ago, the wheels started to come off and all of the trauma that I had kind of sherpaed my whole life, carried with me my whole life, just surfaced and overwhelmed me to the point of um, needing to be hospitalized. And, And that's kind of where this this book that I'm working on right now has arisen from is that journey of trying to reclaim and find my identity when I'm not doing the job that I've done for the entirety of my adult life. So um, I have four beautiful children. Uh, They are all grown and out of the house except for one and uh, have been really lucky to have had the benefits of a family that I didn't have. And, uh, they're, they're great kids. They're a little loud and rowdy though. I don't know how they got, I don't know how they got that way. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, so, I mean, wow. I mean, you just, you just laid it down. You have laid it down here. So talk about, I mean, Okay, let's back up, because like I said, this is one of the themes that I've been working with is mental health and self-care. What what are some of the things you've been challenged with? Um, I mean, I, I've known some of them just because we've worked together trying to get this book proposal together. But I would love if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about, you know, what what some of those things have been and how you've engaged with them. Right. Well, like I said, I I went into a major mental collapse and ended up in a psych and trauma hospital, which has got its own set of stories with it, which are really entertaining. Um, but uh, if you ever want, if you ever want good story fodder, man, just go to rehab. But uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, while I was at the Psych and Trauma Hospital, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, which is different than um, PTSD. It's actually a whole different disease. Um, it, it just kind of arises out of chronic and continual abuse or trauma that uh, feels inescapable, uh, generally arises from childhood trauma. And with it generally comes a major depressive disorder and anxiety disorder, which I also have. I also learned that I have dysthymia, which is um, mm. a different kind of depression, which is kind of always in action. So, I mean, I didn't know there was two different kinds of depression. I didn't even know I was depressed. So mm. that, that was kind of interesting. But 
um, just recently, uh, and, and it was kind of hinted at while I was in the hospital three years ago, but um, just recently have been officially diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. And uh, if you'll let me, I'll explain that just Please. a little bit. Um, people think of dissociative identity disorder and they think of Sybil or Split or any of those kinds of things. They blend in um, an identity disorder with multiple personality disorder, and they're actually two very different things. Uh, dissociation just means everybody dissociates. Uh, you're driving down the freeway, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm three exits past where I needed to be, or you're reading a book and realize you're 20 pages past where you actually remember. It's just your mind um, wandering or just getting distracted going someplace else. As a trauma victim, dissociation means that whatever you're going through and whatever is happening to you becomes so overwhelming that your brain goes someplace else for safety. And so mm. you dissociate from that experience. It's uh, it's an amazing God-given tool that preserves the sanity of children and of trauma victims going through things. Um, but it becomes maladaptive as you're a safe person or you're in safety later and something triggers it and you dissociate. So I have that in the sense that sometimes um, if something triggers me, I'll just, my brain will just check out someplace else and I may not remember a conversation. I may not remember seeing something or hearing something because of the dis the dissociation. Dissociative identity disorder means that within me there are separate, um, separate, not entities, not personalities, but there's compartments. So the things that happened to me in my very young childhood, uh, I can describe some of them. I can remember some of them, but it doesn't seem like it's quite me. I feel like I'm describing somebody else's life mm. as as a young mother, I'll look at pictures and videos of my kids and me, and I recognize it as myself, but I don't, um, I don't have any emotion tied to that. Like, oh, I remember being there because I don't remember. It's like watching a movie that I've never seen before. Um, as a teenager and a grade schooler, some of the things that happened, again, I can describe them, but it doesn't have any feeling or emotion with it. And it's very disconnected. So it becomes very disconnected, compartmentalized uh fragments of one person that are not easily ac accessible. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm following you. I'm with you. What? So let me ask, I mean, this is it, as you, as you know, folks may be listening to this and, you know, and I, and, and my, in my, uh, my listening group or the folks that, I, you know, that, that follow profane faith, you know, they, we, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to be stretched and all that good stuff. How have you navigated some of this? I mean, so growing up, was this something that, you know, when you were a teenager, was this something that was aware uh, that you were aware of? Has it always been around? Did it, did it manifest later in life? How did, how did you navigate some of these things? Just, yeah. Well, it's always been around, obviously, um, the PTSD and um, depression and all of that has always been around. I just didn't have a name for it. I didn't know um, some of the dissociative stuff. I just thought I was different than that other people, you know, I always kind of feel like I'm, I'm separate. I'm not in the group, you know, I mean, you've seen me, you've seen me in a group and I'm fully engaged, but I may not feel like I'm really 
really present there. Um, so I, I didn't really have to engage any of this. I, I was a workaholic. I worked all the time, um, busy with four kids. I had four kids in five years. Um, so always had, you know, lots of kid activities, things going on, busy family. So I didn't have time to slow down until, um, you know, God and life forced me to slow down. And, uh, the, the wheels started coming off my marriage. I was just really struggling to even remember conversations. I literally could be in the middle of a conversation with someone like you that I know well and think I have no idea what his name is. So it was getting to a point where it was really uh, inhibiting my work life and my day-to-day life. And hmm. so once I went into um, a clinical setting and they started to diagnose me with this stuff, I just thought, you guys, you guys are just high on crap. There is no way that that this is all going on in my brain. But the more that they explained it, and the more that I began and uh, began to understand what it really meant, it it identified it. It resonated with me, and I and I was like, yeah, that really is that really is what I'm what I'm dealing with. Um, so it's kind of been this slow evolving process. At first, at first, I think being diagnosed with mental illness at all is terrifying because it's one new it's like being diagnosed with a major illness you're like oh man is everybody gonna know what are they gonna think of me are they uh are they gonna think of me differently am I ever gonna work again uh or is anybody ever gonna hire me to do anything because I have mental illness and but it just took me a while and honestly what what really kind of broke me out of that is I finally decided to start blogging and um start talking about it a little bit and at some point um, it kind of became, you know, the emperor's new clothes, you know, how naked is too naked. I'm just going to say, say what I say and let it land where it lands. And this is for me. And if there's an audience then that's fine, but, um, it, it has taken an adjustment. And right now, really this whole thing with DID has been, um, another adjustment. It's another level of illness that I don't know anybody else. I know that they exist, obviously, but I literally know nobody else in my world that deals with this disease. I know people who deal with PTSD, even complex PTSD, um, depression, anxiety. I know people who deal with that, but I literally know nobody else who has DID. And uh, so it's an adjustment and it's, it's kind of scary to talk about. And it's kind of really relieving because I feel like I, I finally have the correct category to talk about my experiences. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and you said you've been, you are married and how long you've been married? 25 years. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. We got married when we were in college and just celebrated 25. Congratulations. Congratulations. So yeah, it's a miracle. What? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, now why you say that? Break it down to me. I mean, I, 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 people always say, "Oh man, I made it. it's a miracle." But what, what does that, what does that mean for you? You know, um, five years ago, we were really struggling. Uh, my husband had taken a job that required him to travel and be gone a lot. I mm-hmm. had four teenagers at home. That right there was enough to throw anybody over the edge. I had four teenagers at home. <laughs> I um, had planted and was pastoring a church. I was running a community center. I was also working as a master level facilitator and coach for some businesses, traveling, doing that. Um, I'm a little bit of an overachiever, so I was doing a lot. I I was writing for two magazines 
magazines at that point. I was uh, traveling and speaking for other people. And all of the busyness and the chaos took its toll on us. But kind of the final straw was this job that he had taken where he was traveling all the time. And it was a passion project for him and something that he'd always wanted to do. And I, and I, I, I realized that, but what happened is it felt like abandonment to me. And I felt like he just had chosen this passion project over me and the great needs of our family. And I hear I was left, you know, pastoring a church by myself and running a family and doing all of those things solo. And I, I didn't sign up for that. Yeah. And, yeah. and he he couldn't hear what I was saying because I didn't really know how to articulate it well. And he didn't know what that was doing to me internally. And, um, it would, it was just kind of a, just kind of a hot mess. So, uh, you know, the fact that we made it through that and we were, you know, we were in marriage counseling and therapy and all of that, um, which was helpful, but it wasn't really getting to the root of the problem because nobody really knew how, how deep the roots of my mental illness, uh, had gone and, people didn't really know, uh, you know, what, what to do with it. One of the, one of the benefits and the liabilities of being me is that I'm considered extraordinarily high functioning in my illness. Uh, you will find people who have the same set of not circumstances, but diagnoses as I do, uh, who don't have the advantage of the kind of functioning that I have to integrate with people, uh, talk, teach, write. Uh, I, I've been very fortunate in that. Man, that yes, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, I, I know when you first broke this down to me, I was, you know, in all honesty, I was like, wow, really, her? I mean, she's got man. It's like you know, you, again, you come with these. At least for me, I come with stereotypes and. Man, that's uh, it's deep. I mean, this is this is this is some deep stuff. How how has this you know, how, particularly with with your kids, how has this been? Has it affected them? Has have they not? Uh, you know, does any, anything get get passed on? Are they dealing with anything? If, again, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, you know, I, I think for my kids. You know, it was really scary at first, right? They, you know, all of a sudden I was gone and I was gone for months. I, I think I hold the record for the longest stay at this particular hospital. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was really scary for them because they, because they didn't understand. Um, I, you know, I try to give them information as we go. Uh, so they understand kind of what's going on in my brain and they've become, because they're older now, um, they've become really accommodating and they understand, uh, just little things like the other day, there was a big wrestling tournament and my daughter wanted to go. And she said, no, is that, is that kind of crowd going to bother you? And I said, I just don't think I can do that. She goes, oh, that's fine. You know, we, we won't go, um, or I'll go with a friend. And so I feel bad that I, that I can't do that, but I'm not going to go, I, I can't do a stadium of, you know, 20,000 people screaming, mm -hmm. pe screaming people in chaos and, and, and be okay without having to pay the price of not feeling well later. So they know, and I've been more open about some of my triggers. Um, I think the hardest thing for me, one of the hardest things is I have spent my life in the church system and have 
I, I just love the church as a vehicle to bring God's word to the community um, when it's at its best. And I haven't been to church more than five times in three and a half years because the group, uh, the group setting, I, I haven't figured out all what it is, but it makes me sick. It makes my stomach upset. It makes me sick. It puts me out for a couple of days. And that just drives me crazy because I feel like that that feels really unfair. That feels, um, I don't like that, but I don't have any control over that. So we just keep trying to work with it and do what we can do. But so the kids, the kids understand that. And so we've talked a lot about that, about church and the kids understand that, man, our relationship with God is with God and it's not with just the body. The body's a part of it, but there's a lot of ways to connect with that without the large gathering. So, um, they're, they're really understanding. They're, they're good about it and they make jokes about it, which is good because I do too. So it's, it's good. Man, man. And, and how, I mean, I'm, cause I mean, I guess one of my questions is how have you arrived at such clarity, um, with where you're at right now and in, 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 in understanding those triggers. And I guess the follow-up, you know, would be to that is, you know, what are some of the, the self-care things that you do? So that's, I guess that's two parts. Well, a lot of therapy, a lot of therapy for three and a half years. I've seen my therapist twice a week, every damn week. Um, and, uh, have, have a good psychiatrist. Uh, I've been really blessed. You know, I'm not in a very big community. Billings is 50,000 is 150,000 people. So, um, it's not like we have a lot of choices when it comes to some of those, um, specified healthcare needs, but I've been really fortunate to have a trauma therapist that has just been infinitely patient with, uh, my being able to trust and open up and, I feel like in the last year we've made, uh, you know, 10 times the strides we made in the first two years. And that's just because of a matter of trust and my um, just kind of getting my wherewithal. To be honest, when I got out of the hospital for six months, I sat on the couch and colored. I, I couldn't leave the house. I became, you know, slightly agoraphobic. The world was just way too overstimulating. I had deep grief over not not pastoring, not being with my people. Um just deep sadness over losing what I thought was my life, but it really was a process of claiming a different life. Um, but you know, I'm not always at, I'm not always at, at peace with it. I work from home now. I'm really, really fortunate. I work, I work from home. I write, I write, uh, professionally and I can work in my pajamas, which is why we can't video this call. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, I have my own space in the house that feels safe. I have my own office. Um, and that is therapeutic in and of itself. But I have days like yesterday where I just think, all right, I painted a picture. I wrote a blog. I cleaned my office. I am a completely useless human being because I feel like I'm not producing something or not doing something that is, um, valuable to somebody else. And that that is partially what I'm writing about in the in in um, the book is where our where our identity comes from, and we're so attached to our identity having to be attached to producing yeah. and to having it be attached to that production being appreciated by people, when that's 
actually a really minor part of our identity. So, you know, things that I do for self-care, I do high intensity interval training five days a week. I do yoga, I draw, I paint, I knit, I, um, you know, I cook some, uh, I write. So I've come up with some tools that are good, but I would say more days than not, I still feel like I need to be doing something more. And it's a matter of patience with myself. And uh, one of the chapters I'm writing is about the, um, the, the distance between guilt and graciousness. And we have such guilt over what we don't do or what we think we should do, where the, the polar opposite is that graciousness for ourselves and to receive that graciousness from others and from God and say, you know, I am created to be who I am. And if I sit here and just sit here, I am every bit as valuable as if as any, as anybody else. And that's a, that's a pretty hard, um, that's a really hard lesson for an Enneagram three type a high D personality. (laughs) (laughs) Come on now. Come on now. Well, I think that's, I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because I mean, I think that I know that's one of the things I've struggled with just productivity and am I doing enough or is the stuff that I've done, good enough and can I compete? I mean, cause it's such a, you know, a cultural edge to competitiveness that is in everything we do, right? It's like, it's in commercials, it's in, it's in church, it's in the books we read, it's in, you know, it, and it's, it's all over social media. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a really good word. I mean, that's a really good word. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself pastoral now? Do you see yourself in any, in any of those spaces? How is that, how is that, you know, worked out or, or maybe it's not working out? I, I, I don't know, but I'd be curious well, to, to hear. You know, I, I have always said, despite what denominations may say, Um, I have always said that I was a pastor in no matter what chair I sat in. So if I was sitting as an executive, consulting executives at a at a, an official hospital board meeting, I'm still pastoral because that's part of my call and who I am. And so whether or not I use Jesus words, um, hopefully I have Jesus character. And so therefore I, I, I see everything that I do within a pastoral realm. Um, I, I grieve, I still grieve and cry over a church that I deeply loved where people, you know, could just stand up and say, man, I fell off the wagon, or they could say, you know, that's a bunch of BS. I don't believe it. We could just go, okay, why do you feel that way? I miss that kind of community of worship and authenticity. And so I, I grieve that community. I still preach occasionally when I'm invited. I enjoy that. Um, I, I find that I do better in a crowd if I have a role because then I'm focused on something other than just the kind of the group and the chaos. Hmm. Um, so if I have a role, I can speak to countless numbers of people. If I don't have a role, I feel kind of lost and then start feeling kind of, you know, messed up. Um, but 
I do see myself in a pastoral role. I would like to see myself in a pastoral role at some point, but I think it's going to be more in terms of, I have to remind myself that in writing, I reach more people, thousands more people than I ever would preaching a sermon. And and that's a constant reminder to myself that that gift, and I've been lucky enough to have a secondary career, you know, who gets to start over when they're, when they're 44 and just do something totally different and, and find some success in it. I mean, that, that, you know, by the time we're, we're 40s, we're kind of trying to establish and get to the top of our careers. And here, mine was completely taken away. And yet mm. then I had this, this whole other thing that was, that was, uh, came to fruition. So that's a long answer to say, I'd, I'd love to see myself in the role a role within the larger body of the church at some point um, in the realm of day-to-day pastoral parish ministry. I don't think um, I can see myself ever doing that again, especially with the kind of community that I was pastoring in. Um, I was pastoring with uh, some highly disenfranchised, disadvantaged people. Um, There were nine suicide attempts in my church. There was some suicide success. There was a murder kidnapping. Um, Oh, my gosh. Murder kidnapping, prostitution, drug ring. There was... um, there was, uh, you know, violent offenders that we dealt with, um, and a, a lot of different things that happened just within my church community. And because of all of the trauma that I had sustained in my, in my younger life, that trauma on top of it was really one of the things, one of the major things that tipped the scale. So I can't see myself um, being healthy and doing that kind of a role again. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I hear you on that. What and as you're talking, I mean, again, there's, there's so many great things that you're that you're connecting with. I'm curious. I've had a, a couple of colleagues and uh, friends who have said, you know, either whether it be uh, you know physical disability or whether it be mental health issues, that being in Christian spaces was one of the most toughest you know, uh, spaces to be, right? Because everybody wanted to pray for you or everybody had a word or, and, you know, people would ask, you know, are you sure you haven't, you know, uh, you haven't confessed some sin and God is trying to, well, it, how, how's that been or what, what's that been like? You know, I, first of all, there are people who are, um, you know, you know, I have a word for you and I think, well, I got a word for you too. But, um, but, you know, they'll say, you know, you know, you need to, you know, accept your joy, accept your peace, um, you know, find your peace and comfort in God. And all of that is true. It's not untrue. But just because I do accept that doesn't mean that, um, doesn't mean that, uh, I don't still struggle with illness. And I I think we have this concept of healing that says, you know, once we, once we are healed and claim healing, then it doesn't, things don't ever, um, don't ever reoccur again. And mental illness, mental health is, is, um, generally not that way. It's not outside the realm of possibility that God can miraculously heal the illnesses that I'm dealing with. It just, that this is where I'm at today. And so Hmm. with that, um, with that, 
I think that the church is uh, scared of mental health. I think the church doesn't know what to do with mental illness. I think some of that is out of ignorance and not out of, you know, willful disobedience and, and willful, um, you know, not trying to acknowledge mental health, but I think we've done a real disservice in Christian communities to relegate mental health in the same as emotional health. And emotional health can be so um, influenced by um, by by worship and by prayer and and so many of those things. Mental health is um, what underlies all that and your ability to absorb what's happening in your emotional health. And I think when we don't when we don't distinguish between the two, we run the risk of relegating everything to emotional health. Think more positive, be more positive, pray more, uh, uh, you know, acknowledge the beauty of God around you. And again, none of those things are untrue and none of those things are negatives. It just isn't the whole truth when it comes to mental health. When you you know, we understand combat PTSD more than we understand survivor of abuse PTSD. We don't understand complex PTSD well. Um, depression has become one of those things where people will um, use it uh, interchangeably with sadness. You'll hear teenagers say, oh, I'm so depressed. What they're saying is I'm just really, really sad. So, de- But depression has become something we can talk about. We can talk about anxiety now, anxiety attacks, but it also is one of those words that's become you know, oh, I'm having an anxiety attack. Well, what they're saying is I'm really, um, I'm really anxious about what's going on, but those are real health, mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. But then again, when you get to the point of of dissociative, um, it's like everybody just throws their hands up in the air and goes, I don't get it. And frankly, with dissociative identity disorder, uh, there is, I mean, even though it's in the DSM-5, it's a diagnosable illness, there are people who just don't believe that it's a thing. Yeah. So, uh, and that, and that's because of the sensationalizing of, uh, multiple personality disorder and, um, and people kind of blowing that out of reality proportion. Yeah, exa- exactly. 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 So, oh, well, exactly. I, and you know, I mean, I think about, you know, the movies that are out there that deal with that and it's, you know, unless it's a documentary it's it's never really in a in a positive light or something that is 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 to bring better understanding to it rather it's something to be feared or a killer or a murderer um right yeah i'm not a mass murderer by night you know (laughs) (laughs) my worst offense at night is i snore i mean really i yeah and that's that's kind of people's feelings of it but you know i also think that Given the right set of circumstances, I don't mind if people ask questions because people will ask me, um, well, how many of you are there? And I don't find that offensive. I think that's an education piece. Um, You know, they're just trying to just trying to understand. So I think for those who struggle with mental illness, I do think there's a lot of graciousness that has to happen there because there's just a lot of ignorance. And again, it's not because people want to be ignorant. They just don't know. And so I think I think in the same 
in the same way as sometimes we'll ask people from different cultures, you know, what's it like to live in your world or what is it like being a person of color in this situation? I don't think that's a disrespectful question. I think that's an inquisitive question and it's okay to ask. And we should ask those questions so we know more. And so I think with mental illness, it's the same way. I think it's okay. In my opinion, it's okay for someone to say, how does your depression affect you during the day? Um, you know, is, you know, what do you do to keep yourself going? Um, it's okay to ask about medication. You know, I don't, I don't care, but I know not everybody's lives like that, but I think we have to get to a point, especially if we're going to understand mental health better, we have to get to a point where we can talk about it with some level of comfort. How would you say to, church leaders, um, you know, in, in engaging with, uh, mental illness, mental health, uh, aspects, you know, and the spectrum of it, right. All the way from like, you know, different forms of depression and all the way, you know, into, you know, to, you know, to where you're at or to where others, you know, are being, like you said, you know, the PTSD, um, how, you know, how would we do and how, how do you avoid, I mean, maybe this is already, I mean, that's a leading question, but because I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out because coming from a charismatic background myself, it was very easy to categorize, categorize something like, for example, schizophrenia as demonic, right. Um, right. as satanic, um, and as something to be feared and shameful of. Uh, so right. I, that's that's the, the context of that question. And I'm hearing more and more of that. Um, unfortunately, a lot, oftentimes in, in, in POC uh, uh, spaces, particularly in the church. But I'd be curious, like, what would you how would you address that? How would you deal with that? Would you you know, how do you, how do you engage the theological ignorance, I guess? there? I think you need. I think churches and church leaders and organizations need people who will speak to that and be willing to engage it without fear. And find people that, um, like I've taught several classes now where I will come in and talk about, you know, kind of the spectrum of mental health, mental illness, and then talk about, um, this happened in scripture, this, you know, we, we can see, we can see, um, madness and illness and depression. And we can see it all the way through the word. And yet God was completely present in those times, even in the midst of, even in the midst of those circumstances. And so I think people don't understand all the time that illness and the presence of God can be co-occurring. We, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, but I think it really takes an intention for a church and for leadership to bring people in if they don't have people there who will talk about the reality of mental health and mental illness and who will be willing to talk about it with grace and say this is a thing and we do pray for healing and we do accept healing and sometimes healing comes in a variety of forms and it doesn't always come with a complete wholeness of mental and emotional health. And to be frank, there also has to be some acknowledgement on the part of everybody that none of us is 100% mentally and emotionally healthy. We live in a broken world and and 
all of us have deficits, not of character, but deficits within our, ment- our, our minds and our emotions because the world is broken. We hurt each other and we live with scars, but those scars don't have to be debilitating. They can be formative. I heard, um, I heard a speaker one time uh, say that your circumstances can either define you or they can refine you. And I choose to live in a way that says this is going to refine me. It's not going to it's not going to be my definition. My definition isn't that I'm Jill and I'm mentally ill. My definition is that I'm Jill. I'm a child of God. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm beloved. And I struggle with this with all of this stuff too. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's deep. That's a good word right there. That'll preach. That's right. It will <laughs> preach. Man, um, what are some of the things that you are working on? You talked about a book. You you got you're speaking, you're doing different aspects of art and all that good stuff. What are some things that you are that you're uh hopeful of and moving forward? Well, I I write for two magazines, a local magazine and then um, a denominational magazine, and I enjoy that. Um, that keeps me kind of busy, keeps me connected to um, both the community and kind of the outside world, and so I enjoy that. I blog every week at JillReilly.com, um, and that is about living a life of faith with mental illness. Uh, some of it's humorous and snarky, and some of it's just uh, just how the week has been and what, what I'm learning. Um, I am working on a book, and I'm hoping to get some forward motion on that. And, and that book is not only partially my story, but it's about identity, and the idea being that our identity is 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 many components but primarily the component between who we are and what we do and there's a there's a tension there's a line between those two things and the tighter we hold that tension the more apt we are to have a complete breakdown if that tension snaps everybody will have some time in their life where there's going to become a crisis of identity whether it's a loss of a beloved um, a major career change a health crisis um, a child going off the rails where all of a sudden that line snaps and you just go, I don't know who I am because I no longer am doing what I did or I no longer can do what I did. And so I don't have anything to kind of hold me up anymore. And so that's what happened to me. All of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pastoring a church, I'm running a community center, I'm doing all of these different things. And then the line broke and I had nothing to hang on to, to say, this is who I am in spite of what I do, because what I do was so overly weighted and overly balanced. Um, and so it has been, it, it is a long work of finding out who I am outside of what I do. And it sounds like it's a really simple concept, but when you think about it in the terms of holding a balanced tension between the two, I think it becomes a challenge for most of us, especially in the Western world. Yes. Um, so that's my big project. That's, that's 2019. I would love to, um, I would love to see, to see that come to fruition. And those are my major projects besides I'm really, I'm really trying to learn to draw. I've always wanted to draw. I thought I've, and so I try to draw a picture every day and I just got to tell you, I'm terrible at it. 
I'm just terrible. And so <laughs> I've taken all these classes and I, I've worked through all these workbooks and I just think I've only passed second grade art so far, but I'm determined. I want to be one of those people that can take a little journal book and travel around and draw a picture, but, um, it, it's not going well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. I hear you on that. I gave that up a long time ago, but that's good. You let me know how that goes. Yeah. Um, well, where so, can folks find you? Well, they want to bring you out and, and, and have you consult for, you know, uh, two, three hundred bucks an hour. Where can folks uh, find yeah. you? Um, yeah, um, you can find me at um, Jill at JillRiley.org or um, you can find me at uh, JillRiley.com. There's conf- there's uh, contact information there. I'm on Facebook at JillRiley.author. Um, also on Instagram at JillRiley.author. So you can find me at any one of those places. Pretty easy to find. That's what's up. And, of course, as always, those of you listening, I'll put all these links uh, and more in the show notes at WhiteHodgePodcast.com. Jill, before we sign off here, what uh, what would you say to someone who maybe be listening and maybe is like experiencing some stuff and they think it might be depression? I know, and, and I'm speaking from experience here, it took me a long time to come to the realization that my depression and anxiety was to the point that I needed to seek medical help um, and actually get medication. And so how, what would if somebody's kind of on that brink or listening and just trying to wrap their head around their own stuff, what would what would you what would you say? What would you what would you what would you say out there? I would say get over your damn self and <laughs> go find somebody you can talk to. It's always worth the question. It's always worth a second opinion. Um we're not doctors. We can't self-diagnose our, self-diagnose ourselves. And you know, what have you got to lose? If you go in and ask somebody and say, here's what I'm dealing with. And I don't, I don't quite understand the way I'm thinking. There's someone who is a paid professional who is paid to understand what you're saying. And I think we've got to access that, but don't let fear stand in your way because, you know, we, it's always scarier what we don't know. And we presuppose a lot. If I go in, they're going to give me medication. If I go in, they're going to tell me I'm this. If I go in, then, then they're going to put me in this category. And we're, and, and that's just fear. We've just got to get over ourselves and say, if I'm going to be the best person that God has called me to be and do the best job that he has called me to do, then I need to be at the wholest that I can be. And that may include some mental health assistance. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. I love it. I love it. I love it. And that first part that you said, that was a, that was a big one. I know for me, again, speaking from personal experience, well, and of course my wife, my (laughs) wife was behind me like, dude, you need to go, brah. So, um, That was not, that was not my case. I got sent to a, I got sent to a workshop by the denomination. So we just think you, this would benefit you. And I had a major collapse and they were checking me into the hospital and asked me if I had superpowers. So, I mean, you know, don't wait till you get there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. Definitely not. Oh my gosh, Jill. Thank you so much for taking the time out and talking today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk to you. This is amazing. And if you're a publisher or have access to publishing the publishing world, sign this woman up right now. You just go ahead and cut, cut, cut the contract. All right. Just go to the show notes, click on that link and hook her up. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jill. All right. 
Hey, you. Let me get a minute of your time real quick. Y'all looking for a great speaker? You looking for somebody to work out issues with faith and race and intersectionality? Well, why don't you come check me out? Whitehodge.com. Uh, you can come check me out, get an inquiry, see some of the work that I've done. But here's the other part of it. I have a wife who is amazing as well. She's white. She is woke. <laughs> Right, as, as the young people say, and we can come as a couple to consult, to talk, to help work out some of the kinks, particularly in faith based settings, um, who are trying to move forward uh, in this milieu of interculturality that doesn't always seem to make sense. Now, don't get it twisted, think of us as a hundred proof, single barrel aged whiskey. Uh, we'll go, we bring it. But if you're interested and you want to talk more, come to whitehodge.com, fill out the little form there on contact, send us an email, and we'd love to talk with you about that. I've also published a lot of books around race, faith, hip-hop, gender. Check those out as well. Yeah. Fair pricing. We'll work with you uh, and your organization. But check us out, whitehodge.com. Thanks. I look forward to talking with you and seeing you.